from you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why she wouldn't even harm a fly. What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGN+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cordelius. And as always, we are very excited to be back with you again for another great week of Chicago film talk. So, Connor, there's always a ton of screenings going on in this city. There's, there's more than I can count. Right, and it can be hard to find out which ones are the ones that are going to be worth your time. Absolutely. And luckily today, we do have uh, a couple of screenings that we want to talk about that are over at the Gene Siskel Film Center, 164 North State Street. You know, it's right next to ESPN Radio's right over there, uh, ABC7. You you can't miss it. It's right over there. And it's one of my favorite places to be. You know, we were recently there for uh, the premiere of Banana Season in Which Chicago. we hosted the Q&A and introduction for. Yes, and I've been there a couple of times for other screenings as well. Beautiful theater, uh, such a fun place to go see a movie. And luckily, coming up, they've got a couple of screenings we wanted to talk about. One of them is for a film from 1945 titled Detour. That's directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. Uh, that one's from the USA. And then also Wings of Desire, 1987, from the great Wim Wenders, a German film. And luckily, we were able to uh, bring into the conversation uh, a really important person from the Gene Siskel Film Center. He's the Associate Director of Programming, uh, Mr. Marty Rubin. Marty, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. So let's start off with a little bit of information about the Gene Siskel Film Center itself. Uh, A lot of people have not had the chance to get over there. Some of them might not even know how that uh, film center came to be. So maybe you could give us a little bit of a background. Uh, The Gene Siskel Film Center, we're just about to enter our 47th year. Uh, we've been at our current location since 2001 on uh, State Street. We're uh, a, what's known as a public program of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, we're totally open to the public. We're like a regular movie theater, except we show a, a much wider a variety of films than you would find at uh, your normal movie theater or even most repertory uh, theaters and cinematechs. And, I mean, it's, it, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, you even had recently an entire series on uh, Ingmar Bergman, I believe, celebrating his birthday. Uh, there was one on Hal Ashby very recently. So that wide berth is there, and uh, you can experience a lot of films that you wouldn't see anywhere else. Uh, tell us a little bit about being the director of programming. What does that role entail? Okay, first of all, I, I, I'm not the director of programming. Oh, I'm the associate director of programming. Right. The director of programming, uh, who's been there a, a very long time, is Barbara Sherris. Uh, we work very closely together. Uh, we select the films. We book them. We draw up the schedule, and we write all the descriptions, which are both in our printed gazette and on our website. Uh, 
so uh, you know, we we just don't pick films. There's a lot more to film programming than just saying, you know, wouldn't it be nice to show this movie? You have to track them down, and you have to think about how you're going to place them and how you're going to present them to the public. I definitely want to ask about how you do end up tracking these movies down because, um, I mean, these 4K restorations are probably not the easiest things in the world to find. But uh, first, I wanted to ask you a quick question. As the Gene Siskel is so intimately connected with the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, how do you find time to squeeze in uh, films from students or people who are independent filmmakers in the city? How do you decide to squeeze that in between, you know, these cinematic classics like Detour? We like to show um, films by local independent filmmakers, and um, we uh, uh, do it all the time. Uh, we, uh, you, you were at uh, a banana season, uh, 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 like you said, by by, by saying who. Uh, um, uh, the, the, we consider that part of our mission, really, to present. Uh, there's a thriving independent uh, uh, film community in Chicago, and we encourage people to submit their films, and we won't show everything, but, you know, there are enough good films around where we think we can show a healthy uh, selection of those. We really think that's a very important part of our mission. Yeah, it's a great mix and excellent uh, programming on part of the entire team uh, involved in. And also, I love that you guys take the op- take the time and the opportunity to write a little bit about these films, give people a little bit of context, and uh, really present these as not just, oh, let's just watch a movie. Let's have an experience. Uh, the Gene Siskel is perfect for that. So let's jump into these two films that are going to be showing uh, at the Gene Siskel Starting with Detour, uh, as I mentioned, Edgar G. Ulmer. This one's from all the way back in 1945, only 69 minutes long. Uh, and that's going to be playing starting, it's already started playing. It started yesterday, December 7th, and it's going to be going until the 13th. Tell us a little bit about Detour. Possibly the best place to start with Detour is just to say, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of many other people, it's um, the greatest B-movie ever made. Uh, it's You could call it the Sis and Kane of B-movies. Uh, it's um, a film, uh, it's belongs to the genre known as film noir, or the uh, uh, generic movement known as film noir, where you have fatalistic stories with... Um, very uh, uh, stylish, uh, dark camera work, um, and uh, it's it's good on every level. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't want to uh, limit the film by just saying it's the greatest B movie. It's a great movie. Period. It has terrific acting, um, terrific, uh, uh, really an excellent screenplay. Even though it's um, you know, on a kind of pulp level, uh, uh, level pulp fiction. And most of all, it has a, a terrific direction by a very talented director, Edgar G. Omer, who, um, for various reasons, got exiled into the B-movie uh, ghetto 
for uh, nearly all of his career, but found the whatever the inspiration to be able to do do some very good uh, and even great work on that level of production. And um, of his several worthy, very worthy films, uh, I think most people would agree that Detour is the best. It's um, almost a a perfect film. I mean, it's it's constructed like a, a Swiss watch. Everything fits together. It might only be 60 minutes, 69 minutes long, but every minute and every shot counts in this film. It really reminds me um, of the the Stranger by Albert Camus. Just just in so far as the the fatalism that you described, the amount of just darkness that's happening throughout the movie is uh, uh-huh. yes, yes. It's it, everything as the uh, um, hero of the film, Al Roberts says. Uh, Whichever uh, uh, way you turn, fate sticks out a foot to trip you, <laughs> and uh, that certainly happens to him in this film. Uh, although, you know, it's not like it's some gloomy uh, uh, existential novel or something like that. There's a lot of humor in it, uh, a lot of, which is not untypical of film noir. There's a... Uh, uh, the the predicaments that the heroes get in it's kind of at times hard to tell if they're um, tragic or comic the way they become sort of fate's punching bag and uh, make one bad decision after another. Well, it sounds like a total treat for noir fans out there, and I know there are a lot here in the city. Uh, let's talk about getting this film. You know, it's from 1945. You know, it was shot on original film, all that kind of stuff. We don't have the luxury of just having uh, digital files to pull from. Tell us a little bit about how this restoration looks. Uh, do you think that it gets uh, gets it right? Is managed to give this a clean presentation? Oh, it's more than that, uh, Tom. Um, for many years, this film was produced for a uh, small company that long ago went out of business. The film went into public domain. So what has been circulating for the last, um, I don't know, 60 uh, years or so have been these uh, beat-up, doopy, scratchy, copies of the film and in a way that became part of the charm and the mystique of the film that it it sort of fit in with these um, um, kind of uh, bottom of the barrel lives that the characters were living and um, it gave it a kind of diamond in the rough quality you know that that only the uh, cognoscenti could uh, uh, discern the, the quality of these, uh, you know, this film that, uh, uh, you know, didn't get uh, any sort of uh, uh, prestige packaging or anything like that. So that sort of is how I watched the film for many, many years. Uh, the company Janus Films, um, or Janus Films, I probably have a better way of pr- uh, pronouncing it, um, they uh, shopped the film to us. They asked if we wanted to show it. Uh, I, I already knew and loved the film, so I said, uh, yeah, we're interested. Could you send me uh, a screener link of the new version? 
I'll tell you, Tom, when I saw that screener link, that screener that they sent me, even on, you know, video streaming, my jaw dropped. This was a new detour that I had never seen before. Rather than the um, uh, uh, scratchy, doopy, uh, kind of washed out versions, this was a beautiful um, film-looking film um, uh, with with beautiful lighting and cinematography and, uh, you know, it, it looks like one might assume it looked when it was first released in 1945 because, of course, when they released it, it wasn't in these beat-up prints. It was a Hollywood production, even if it was low-level, and it was shot with the same cameras and the same film stock that uh, you know any film would be uh, shot with. So, um, to me, this was a revelation. Um, a part of me even missed the old, you know, kind of felt a little nostalgic about the old beat-up versions, which were kind of part of the charm of the film. But I think more importantly, uh, this new restoration shows what an amazing achievement it was for Edgar G. Ulmer and his cinematographer to be able to produce such a great looking movie on such a, uh, you know, under such limited conditions and budget. I wanted to ask about the, um, so I, this is Connor, by the way, I have not seen this movie, but I did a, a decent amount of research about it before I came in to talk about it today. Um, and Ulmer is famous for having said that this movie was made in 14 days, uh, that people have since corroborated that it was actually like four six day weeks and that the movie was made for a budget of about a hundred thousand dollars and i'm curious about the um just thinking about how you said that it kind of has a uh, reputation for being the citizen kane of b movies do you think that this 4k restoration is going to be sort of like a reclamation of its uh of its quality because people will, it does sound as though the beat up versions that you got to see over the years probably aided in its cementing itself as a, the king of B movies. Do you think that this 4k is going to change people's opinions of it? It'll, I think it'll certainly change. I don't know if it'll change their estimation of it, but it'll certainly change one's image of the film. Um, it, that it's, um, a somewhat more elegant looking film than we might have uh, surmised from watching it on the earlier versions. It's, um, uh, you know, it's not the film that kind of mirrors the seedy lives of the characters so, um, you know, mimetically or or something like that. It's 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 quite a, an accomplished and, it, you know, in its own way, quite beautiful film. Well, again, it's thrilling to know that this is being brought back to life in a in a new way, thanks to that, those restoration efforts. Again, that's playing now at the Gene Siskel Film Center. It's going to be running till the 13th. 
I want to hop on over to Wings of Desire, which is one that really piqued my interest. Uh, and this is 1987, directed by Wim Wenders, German, uh, about 128 minutes there. And it piqued my interest because the, I've only seen one Wim Wenders film, and I think it's one that many people have seen, Paris, Texas. Uh, and the reason right. I was brought to that because, you know, legend has it is that it was Kurt Cobain's favorite movie. And I was like, well, I have to see it. I have to know what this is all about. And it, it really struck me. It got me interested in the director but i didn't really know where to go next so the fact that you guys are showing wings of desire it's very exciting tell us a little bit about this film uh this film was made um in the wake after paris texas um because paris texas had been a big hit vendors was kind of riding high and had uh you know was able to get uh, financing for a film like Wings of Desire, which might seem to have a very unusual and risky subject matter. You know, it's about angels um, uh, who uh, are walking around Berlin in um, trench coats and scarves and little ponytails and um, invisible to the people around them, but able to listen to their uh, thoughts. Um, this is not your typical everyday, even art film, And but um, Vendors was able to procure financing for it. And where this um, subject came about, he had been living in America, in the United States, um, uh, and trying to set up projects in the United States for something like seven or eight years. He decided to return to uh, uh, Germany and go to Berlin, and he wanted to, f to make a film that would be about Berlin, that would kind of reconnect him with Berlin. And he wanted to... Um, he, he didn't want to make a documentary, but he wanted to make a, a film about Berlin that would go beyond just um, a dramatic story that would take in like the whole of Berlin, um, or at least West Berlin. And uh, the device of the angels, which is something that I think he had been in the back of his mind uh, uh, also, seemed to be a way to do this, to have a way to go all around Berlin uh, and explore Berlin as these angels do, as just part of that's what they do. That's the life of an angel, is to observe uh, human beings. The nuts and bolts of this movie um, have all of the makings of what could be just, I feel like, a great... Um like conflict maybe there's a lot of things in the movie that could be controversial i think for example the like you mentioned him wanting to go back and reconnect with berlin and germany uh there are prominent images throughout the movie of the berlin wall uh which were shot on a set because it was illegal to shoot the berlin wall actually but then also um so the political context aside you also have the representation of religion which you mentioned because the way that the angels are represented is very very human very um sort of drab and they're not exactly you know it kind of shows that being the life living the life of an angel isn't all it's necessarily cracked up to be in all of the imagery around germany which was reportedly what inspired vim vendors for creating the film do you think that that 
could um do you think that there w- actually let me rephrase that was there a decent amount of controversy around the release of this film I don't recall uh, controversy on, um, not really. It seems to me it was acclaimed pretty much uh, universally uh, from the moment it appeared, and it was uh, it was and is considered one of Vendor's best films and one of the best films of the 80s and one of the best German films of all time. Um, the more humble and non whatever you want to call it, non-romanticized presentation of the angels is um, one of the strengths of the film uh, because um, the angels are so close to being human, but there's a line that uh, they're not, you know, that they're kept behind a wall, a wall, you could say, uh, you know, allegorically that they're, that they're kept uh, behind. Um, and um, the um, sequel, actually, to uh, Wings of Desire, the title is um, Far Away, So Close, and that could equally describe the uh, position of the angels in uh, Wings of Desire, too. They're, they're uh, so close to humans, and they're so close to their thoughts and their lives, and they're so look similar in their actions and their appearance to humans, but there's something that separates them from the humans, which in the film is represented by the difference between color and black and white. The angel's point of view is always seen in black and white. The human's point of view is seen in color. Wow. You know what, Marty, you are a true practitioner of cinema and great cinema at that. We very much appreciate it. And thank you so much for giving us all this information. Again, this has been Marty Rubin, the Gene Siskel Film Center's Associate Director of Programming. Um, Again, these are two films, one of them running right now, that's Detour, and that's by Edgar G. Omer from the USA, and then Wings of Desire, that's coming up on the 28th of December and running until January 3rd, Wings of Desire, directed by Wim Wenders from 1987, German film. Uh, Marty, thanks again. We really appreciate your time and such great insight. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for asking good questions, too. All right, everybody. Uh, Coming up next, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Golden Globes nominations, uh, some of the surprises, some of the snubs, and uh, just basically what we're going to see at the Golden Globes and uh, why I hate them. Yeah, Tom, what would you say is the main question about when you... What would you ask about the Golden Globes if you you had one question to ask? Why? (laughs) All right, that's coming up next here on NoCo Cinema. Welcome back, everybody. NoCo Cinema here at WGM Plus, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. Tom Hush. Connor Cornelius. And uh, we're very excited. It's award season, everybody. Hey. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> the Golden Globes. The Golden Globes. Uh, the Golden Globes. I know. The more what I more say, the say? more pissed off I get. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Golden Globes are always kind of the first big awards 
thing of the year. Now, there there have been critics associations, National Board of Review, I believe, have already released some of their picks, and we're not trying to discount them, but the Golden Globes are some of the most public. You know, everybody knows about them. They've got their own little primetime TV special. Tom, probably the most public and perhaps the most publicly drunk as well. Yes. Uh notorious notoriously for how drunk everybody gets at the golden globes tipsy would be generous that would be that would be a very generous way to put it um so the golden globes has released their nominations for 2019 for those of you who don't know the golden globes are voted on by the hollywood foreign press which is a relatively small group of people uh that put together this list it's everybody who's not from the united states um and I'm pretty sure involves no actors, actresses, producers, anything like that. It's the press that vote on it. The thing is, is that they are uh, well known for being swayed easily by whining and dining and uh, getting to do stuff like when they meet the stars, they're more likely to vote for that movie. It's one of those things. I'm not this. I'm going to say this is usually quote unquote hearsay, but it's. Uh, been referenced before even Denzel Washington referenced it on stage when he won for fences I believe or he got he got he got a lifetime achievement award he got a, a golden globe for something and he actively acknowledged it on stage that it's like oh you go have dinner with this person you're gonna win a golden globe yeah and so uh it's kind of like an open secret that this is a little bit of a joke at times but important nonetheless um you know, as as film commentators ourselves, it's hard for us to necessarily discount one person's opinion over another. Right. Um, but I personally do not love the Golden Globes. I think they often get things really wrong and are stuck in a lot of categories categorical issues yeah and i'm a little lukewarm on awards in general in general i think so i think it's interesting when we do get things like the national board of review giving their opinion but it's not an award they're just saying hey we think this was the best movie of the year it doesn't it's not the same pageantry so maybe that's really what gets in the way for me is is the pageantry and how easily these awards are essentially bought and paid for in a lot of instances not every instance but a lot um so Let's just get into the, the some of the nominations. Okay. Um, number one here, we're going to go with Best Motion Picture Drama. drama. Uh, important to note, if you do not watch the Golden Globes frequently, they split the Best Motion Picture between um, drama and musical or comedy, mm-hmm. which kind of implies that a it's movie either... can only be one of those three things. A very binary approach to film. Very black and white, which yeah. I really appreciate. And also, musical or comedy? I mean, okay. So... Because let's... you could get, like, a comedy, you know, or you could get a musical that's not necessarily a comedy, like uh, that one Johnny Depp, Demon Barber of Fleet Street one. Sweeney I mean, that Todd. was comedic in how bad it was. Hey, hey. Hey, uh, something I want to notice about, I want to bring to everyone's attention about this best motion picture. Every uh, nominee has a B in the title. It's a very B-centric Golden Globes. You're not kidding. It has at least a B in the title. At least one B. At least one B. (laughs) (laughs) This year's most popular consonant. (laughs) B! (laughs) Shout out to Jerry Seinfeld. Big year for him. Big year. Uh, So first off, we've got A Star is Born, which is kind of a given. I knew that was going to get nominated. Yeah, uh, Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. I had a feeling that was going to get nominated. Uh, I really enjoyed Black Klansman. 
I, th- I thought was great. Um, if Beale Street could talk. Has not come out yet. Yeah, I don't think that's gotten wide release yet. It might. I'm not sure if it's played at festivals, but like um, has not gotten its wide release yet, I don't believe. That's a new one from Barry Jenkins, uh, who did Moonlight. So that's great. I'm very excited to see it. I'm a big fan of Barry Jenkins. I think he's a great filmmaker. So um, I'm excited to see it. I'm going to hold my judgment until then, though, I guess, yep. other than I want to see it. And you better. Um Two surprises. One, a pleasant surprise. Mm-hmm. The other, a not-so-pleasant surprise. The pleasant surprise is Black Panther. Black Panther. Getting nominated for a Golden Globe. I think that's really interesting. I think that's a really... I mean, if any of the Marvel movies are going to get nominated for a Golden Globe, I'd say probably Black Panther is the one. Dude, I think that Black Panther... I would not be at all surprised if they got a couple nominations for Oscars. Oscars. Yeah, I think it's in the cards. I really think it is. Um, because... Not just because of the quality of the film, but I'm tired of this disparity that these movies that are, like, stupid popular and make a stupid amount of money, but are also good. Like, they get discounted because they're populist films. Right. And, you know, we can get into a conversation about populism versus, you know, like, art and all that kind of stuff. I feel like Black Panther is the best of both worlds. It's just a really fucking fantastic blockbuster. And, like, we have to recognize that on on a stage like this, you know, it, it would be stupid not to, to not say that Black Panther wasn't one of the best films of the year. If, I agree. I don't know if I would put it at the best film of the year, but I think it was one of the best, and in it's addition such a, to being a moneymaker. And in such a shitty organization as the Golden Globes have turned out, best drama or best musical or comedy, yeah. which is one category. Just it's so just stupid. like, who, like... Okay, yeah. And he, Black Panther it, deserves to be in there. It sure. deserves to be in there a hunt. Uh, one that I am not thrilled about, Bohemian Rhapsody. I really think that's just kind of like awarding mediocrity. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why. And it's not because I didn't like Rami Malek in it. And I think it was a decent movie. It's just there's nothing special about it. Like, how can we put that in the same category as Black Panther, Black Klansman, or even A Star is Born. I didn't even, I'm not even a Star is Born fan. And I'm like, come on, that was better than Bohemian Rhapsody. That's like way better than Bohemian Rhapsody. The thing with Bohemian Rhapsody, and we could, you know, talk about this all day, but the, I get really upset, not really upset, I suppose, but I just, I wish that the Sasha Baron Cohen movie that could have been was made. And I think that that for me is just like, I don't give a fuck about this movie. Yeah, as gonna, a that's always going to be like a unicorn for some people. Like movies, movies never made. Yeah, like you know, you you always wish you could have seen what it would have been like, but yeah. we're never going to know. So it kind of doesn't. It's not that it doesn't matter because, especially in that context, because it was because of the film's producers right. and because of the Queen. families involved. Yeah, families involved. Queen, the band itself. That's I'll say the this: that happened. Bohemian Rhapsody is the hologram tour of movies. <laughs> that's rough yeah. i mean you're not wrong though i don't where's the lie where's where the lie? lie uh over to best picture musical or comedy we've got crazy rich asians i think i would put that in the same category as being not only a really great romantic comedy but also a big money maker that was a huge one for this year yep. i feel like people have kind of i mean it got a big push when it first came out people were talking about it left and right um but i hope it stays in the conversation and they're already they've already announced that they're going to film the two sequels back to back so there are two sequels yeah, to crazy rich asians yeah two books that, that it's a, at least a trilogy of books huh there's a few of them 
Okay. So, I mean, it's a it's going to ho- hopefully be a wildly successful franchise for them. Yeah. Um, the favorite, which is a movie I recently saw, just Yorgo Lanthimos, right? yes, um, making a movie that is both so like and so unlike what he has done before. Uh, many of us know him because of two films, The Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Those two, I did not love The Lobster mainly because of the the third act. The third act lost me. I was sure. like, this is such a, a a tonal shift in a way that I really did not enjoy. That didn't make it a bad movie for me, but like it, it seemed inconsistent with itself and it gets like horribly violent. Yeah. <laughs> it gets like ag- just so aggressive at the end of that movie. And I, I will admit, I have still not seen The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Really? Oh my god! I've had every opportunity, and I feel like I would really enjoy that one. I know you saw it. I did, and it is a very – it's an arresting movie from yeah. start to finish. And this is such a different form of arresting. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's basically the based on the true historical events of uh, two women fighting for favor in uh, Queen Anne's court. In I have England. not seen it. Yet. It is it is really good. I really th- it's very the the direction is like the camera look and the look of the movie, the way he shoots people is very Yorgos Lathamos, but the performances are not that stilted. Just deadpan. Yeah. It's, they're not as deadpan. They're a little bit more like not hammy, but they're a little bit more campy sure. in a way that's really endearing to me. I thought it was really great. Uh, stars Rachel Weiss, Emma Stone and Olivia Coleman, who we might remember from the lobster. She was also in the lobster. So um, that's interesting to hear because Lanthimos is, is famous for telling his actors to act as little as possible. Yeah, this was so, this is so different when you see it, you're going to be like, wow, this is so different, but also very much in line with, his it's 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 almost like mean girls i think it was matt Sapola that said mean girls meets like the 17th century interesting he said like he said that in his review and i'm like that is spot on that is spot on matt Sapola. uh green book not i don't even know anything about this you don't know anything about this i know nothing about this Mahershala ali vigo mortensen oh oh okay never mind i do yeah car movie. i was like there's no way yeah yeah well, you know, this has been getting a lot of um, I've heard, like negative things about this. Actually, there's there there's an interesting milieu of opinion. Um, it's Good been a, it's been given a lot of praise. It's also been given some criticism. Uh, specifically, Viggo Mortensen got nailed because in a conversation about it, I think it was post a screen uh, following a screening, um, he used he used the N word to describe like the power of its. Um, of it as a slur, and he oh, got in a bit of trouble there. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm honestly, I'm not at the point where I could comment on it one way or the other. I, I mean, personally, I'm just like, you probably didn't have to actually say it, but if I can see the ideological point, yeah, I don't think we need to go to bat for that. Yeah, we don't necessarily way. need to. I. That's why I'm just like, honestly, uh, for me to comment on it would mean nothing. Right. Other than he probably like I think base reaction is you probably didn't have to actually say it. Right. You know. Um I've heard but, also that it, it kind of sweeps under the rug the concept of racial tension in that time period because it's mm-hmm. set in the what, fifties or the sixties. Well no, it it's definitely about it's about racial tension. He's a musician that travels around Right. And the the green book is like a it's almost like a Michelin star guide. To tell you where, like, you can and can't go as being a colored person, uh, a person of color in the in the South, right? But what I, what I've heard is that it's sort of 
it addresses that it's like there's absolutely no reason why a white person and a black person wouldn't have gotten along in that time is what is oh, what I see I've what you're heard. saying. Okay. I see what you're saying. I have not seen it yet. I guess that's just going to have to be one to put on the list. I've been meaning. I've been wanting. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, really? I want to see it. I want yeah. to see what this does. But, you know, there's just. Well, what a pairing. How many too. hours of the day? Yeah. Mahershala Ali coming hot, relatively hot off of Moonlight. Yep. Um, Viggo Mortensen, always been one of the most fascinating actors. He's done a lot of weird stuff. They're both actors, I think, that never show arrogance in their performances. That's that's a really good way to put it. Especially Mahershala. Ali. So I would really like to see them working together, together on screen. Yeah. Uh, Mary Poppins Returns. So uh, that has not gotten its wide release yet. I yeah. guess it's good. No. Nah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it's a Disney movie, so... You know, it's gonna do. It's gonna make a billion dollars. It's, it's gonna, gonna make, make a billion. so much money. It's gonna, it's gonna make, make a stupid billion. amount of money. And then a uh, Vice from Adam McKay. Excited for it. Anchorman director turned political firebrand. Yeah. Uh, you know, he came out with political big... Moses for the millennial generation. I mean, kind of. Though. Yeah. Like, let's be honest here. He come out with the Big Short. I feel like that spoke to a lot of people our age who were. We were right at that age where we were absolutely cognizant of what was happening. Yeah. Because the people, the kids slightly younger than us, the the people growing up a little bit younger than us, were too young to really get it. They yeah. were just like, what the, what do you mean, like, our houses are being foreclosed on? Like, that, they're like, that doesn't make sense to me. We were just old enough, because that was 2008, so we were in high school. I had just started uh, high school, really. Right. And you're starting the long climb to being an adult. And with yeah. that comes some awareness of political yeah. goings on. And and it may it makes you think about like how those sorts of things affect your psyche. You know, it's the same thing. It's like when there were people, kids, imagine being in high school and then nine, you're in high school when 9-11 happens. Right. Like, what does that do to you? You know, well, how does that change your worldview of things? And I feel like to that 2008 financial crisis was that. And The Big Short was a really great movie. And as you said, the political Moses, Adam McKay, a guy that we, you know, when we were younger and watching his goofier comedies yeah. was such a insp- inspiration of sorts or like such an influence on us. Now he's moved and taken these kind of sensibilities into the political sphere. Vice, of course, being the story of Dick Cheney. Yeah. But it's got, I mean, everybody's talking about Christian Bale's amazing physical transformation. Right. Uh, gained a ton of weight to play Dick Cheney. Um, I'm excited for it. It's got, you know, some great players in there. Amy Adams is in it. Um, you've also got Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. And Sam. Uh, Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell as George W. Hell yeah. It's going to be interesting. I'm interested to see how they're going to present Dick Cheney. Are they going to present him as like a cartoon villain? Like the, like, why'd we do it? Easiest reason, in the, oldest reason in the world. Money. Yes. <laughs> beautiful money. Like, are they going to do it like that? Or or is it going to be a little bit more measured approach like uh, like the big short was? Well, have you seen have you seen the trailer? I have. Yeah. I love how he gets the whole like side like shark thing that Dick changes. Like, <laughs> yeah. He like growls. He's like, I believe we can come to an understanding. Yeah, he's got to like, suck oh, in the God. drool from, from over salivating. Yeah, over money oh it's beautiful money <laughs> well and the, you do get a flash in the trailer that they are going to tackle how he shot that guy oh in the woods yeah uh, i thought you were a pheasant <laughs> <laughs> it's just like he shot i think he was like a senator from arizona or something he was like yeah. another political official and he shot him 
I don't know if it was intentional or just being a dumbass, but he shot him. And then the guy apologized to, to Dick Cheney. Yeah. So I I, it's fascinating because the Bush White House years, I think, are really just starting to get super analyzed. Oh, absolutely. Like, we're real. I think we've gotten to a different, you know, there was the immediate reaction, you know, once Obama was elected, there was the immediate reaction to the end of the Bush era. But, um, I think this is interesting. I think we're really going to start watching some really scathing shit yeah. come back and remind us because Adam McKay really was really hated Bush. Like if you could look at his comedies as like Bush era commentary right. on like the state of American culture during the Bush era. Even in Anchorman, the Steve Carell's character at the end when they say like, where are they now? He's a top he w- political advisor for, for the, the Bush, Bush White, White House. House. Yeah. So it's interesting and I'm really excited to see Adam McKay continue growing as a director doing comedy in a different way because he is a, a total genius when it comes to that. Um, best director. We'll just roll through these real quick. Uh, most of these appear in the best motion picture category. So Adam McKay for Vice, Bradley Cooper for A Star is Born, Peter Farrelly for Green Book, Spike Lee for Black Klansman. I think they owe it to Spike Lee. I'm just going to fucking say it. Okay, that's that's what I was going to say. But I also think, is there a world in which Bradley Cooper doesn't win? Yeah, I think there is. You think there is? Is it this one? It's Well, we also have to mention that Alfonso Cuaron is nominated for Roma, which mm-hmm. has been getting stellar reviews. Stellar. Um, and un- it is going to have a full... It's going to have a theatrical run, but it, apparently it's going to be very short because this is a movie that was uh, picked up by Netflix. Right. So it's going to be... Most people are probably going to watch it on Netflix. They're going to watch a Golden Globe-nominated film for the first time on Netflix at home. The so th- I think that's a fascinating prospect. My perspective of the Golden Globes is that it's like the pop awards show whereas the oscars are like for the the patrician cinema <laughs> fuck off i know but that's the way that i, I that's I, my perspective i of could it. not disagree more really i really so when the martian won for best comedy a couple of years ago that wasn't like that didn't scream okay. just like a pop meme lord pop tra- over here hey i'm trying to be <laughs> i'm trying to start a real conversation don't just write no, me okay off. i'm not trying to write you off i'm saying that i I get what you're saying, but I don't necessarily agree. So you don't think that A Star is Born is going to win for or Bradley Cooper's well, direction? Well, here's I'm looking at it this way. Um, I don't want to discount Alfonso Cuaron because right. huge foreign filmmaker, yep. foreign film, mm. and also the first of its kind really to do this. One, or one of the first of its kind at the very, very least. You know, that that has a shot. I think Alfonso is the dark horse. Okay. I think he's the dark horse in this one. You think they owe it to Spike Lee? I think they owe it to Spike Lee. Right. Because Spike Lee has never really gained the the acclaim as a filmmaker that I think he is pretty richly deserved by this point. Because Do the Right Thing gets famously snubbed. Not I don't know if it was like it didn't get anything for the Oscars in 94. I think it came out in 94. So it'd be the 95 Oscars. So, uh, and Spike Lee has, I'm not going to pretend like he's the greatest filmmaker of all time, but he's made a lot of really great stuff and a lot of interesting stuff. Some of it worked like do the right thing, like black Klansman, like school days, but, um, so she, she, she's got to have it. That's a great, that's a great film. Some haven't, 
you know, uh, Chirac, Chirac is largely considered to be a misstep. I find that film fascinating. Sure. I'm not going to pretend like it's, you know, exactly what I would have hoped. But frankly, I thought it was an interesting risk. Whether or so, not he's had the high, he's, you can say an uneven career, but he's also had really high highs and relatively low lows, but never not a fascinating figure. Yeah, exactly. So I would really like to see Spike Lee get this. Bradley Cooper gets it uh, basically on the pop vote. Um, I really do. I, I'm not saying that he doesn't have a promising career as a director. Sure. I'm just like, I don't think this is the one. Right. A remake of a movie. That's been remade three times prior. Three times prior. And also not done in a, in a visual, like it is visually interesting, but I honestly, I chalk it up more to the cinematographer, um, on that one. You know, but that's a hard thing to say. I don't like, like I said, I don't yeah. want to tell, I'm not trying to say to Bradley Cooper, fuck you your movie's boring right i don't think that but i don't think this is the one okay i really don't think this is the one when there are movies you know when there's black lands and when there's roma and while i haven't seen vice potentially vice that could really bring bring home the bacon that's true that really i think really go above and beyond i think a star is born is like meets the quota but doesn't go above it whereas i think black Klansman. Uh, out of out of the, I mean, that's the only one I've seen though. Out of reverence uh, out, to Spike Lee, yeah, out, not like I mean, I saw Star Is Born, but um, I think Roma might be potentially one that goes above and beyond. I think Black Lansman is one that goes above and beyond. I I just really don't see Bradley Cooper. I really don't see him getting it. Well, fair enough. He got the nom. You know, there he is. Um, Best performance. I haven't seen any of these movies. A lot. Of, I mean, a lot of them. <clears throat> Well, I mean, I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna do some picking and choosing. Um, there's so many categories uh, that we're we're not gonna get to all of them, and we we don't need to necessarily comment on all of them. Uh, best performance by an actress in a motion picture drama. You've got Glenn Close for The Wife, Lady Gaga, Star Is Born, Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me, Nicole Kidman in Destroyer, and Rosamund Pike in A Private War. Lady Gaga wins by a landslide. Yep, obviously. That's that's going to be the pop vote. Yeah. I think they'll snub Cooper, but they'll give it to Gaga. And I am Absolutely. not a huge Melissa McCarthy fan, but uh, I've heard she turned in a really something really special with this movie. Yeah. Let's hope. So well, that's I, interesting. And I do love Rosamund Pike, but yeah. you're right. Lady Gaga is going to get it. Lady Gaga is going to run away with it. As will Bradley Cooper, I think, with the best performance, best actor. Well, we'll see. Yeah, I know. I know. I see you grinding your teeth over there, but I'm. I'm just saying, man. That's what I. Uh, (laughs) That's what I've seen. Best performance for an actress in a motion picture, musical, or comedy. You've got Constance Wu. Uh-huh. For Crazy Rich Asians, I think that's a pretty good pick. Yeah, that wouldn't be bad. uh, Charlize Theron for Tully. Love her. Elsie Fisher for eighth grade. Please. Yeah, there you go. Dark Please. Horse. Is that even no, a Dark Horse? No, I think I think she gets it. Um, you think Elsie Fisher gets it? I think Elsie Fisher gets it wow. over Constance Wu, I think. Well, we'll have to see Emily Blunt. Things look good for Mary Poppins. She's nominated there. And Olivia Coleman for The Favorite, I think, would be hilarious. That, yeah. that would be a great win because she goes for it. I, I love Olivia Coleman. Even if she doesn't win, I think <laughs> she had a, a, one of the best performances as uh, Queen Anne in The Favorite. It's so wild. Um, Supporting role in a motion picture, uh, you've got, and that's actress, uh, Amy Adams for Vice, Claire Foy for First Man, Emma Stone for The Favorite, Rachel Weisz for The Favorite, and Regina King for If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, Claire Foy for First Man, I think, is an odd choice. I thought she was good, not great. Um, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, that'd be interesting. I find it kind of ironic that they're going up against each other. Yeah, it seems kind <laughs> like of stacked a, like in, in favor of The Favorite. <clears throat> but... Uh, 
it, again, it, we remain. It remains to be seen if Beale Street could talk. It remains yeah. to be seen. We'll have to. We'll have to come back and report on that. Actor in a motion picture drama. You're already turning in Bradley Cooper, dude. I'm telling. There's no way, right? Rami Malek. Actually, I could see Rami Malek taking. Yeah, you want to talk about the pop vote? Yeah, that's true. But let's look at the other nominees. Fucking Willem Dafoe at Eternity's Gate. Have not seen it, but Willem Dafoe is so fucking good. Yeah, he's... he's Every time, he's so good. He's very good. Lucas Hedges for Boy Erased, I don't think he's going to get it, because a lot of people did not really like that movie. Yeah. Um, But John David Washington for The Black Klansman. I think that could be an interesting choice. My guess is going to be between Rami and Bradley Cooper. Right. I think... I would prefer, honestly, I'd say I'd prefer if it were Bradley Cooper if it's between those two. Yeah. Cause, well, uh, I don't Rami know. Man, Rami Malek was so good. Yeah. He was like the bright spot of that movie, if we're being honest. Um, musical or comedy, best performance by an actor. You got Christian Bale for Vice, John C. Riley for Stan and Ollie. Interesting. I don't really care to see that movie. I'm mm-hmm. really not super interested. Lin Manuel Miranda, Mary Poppins Returns, Robert He's- Redford. For The oh Old Man God. with the Gun and Vigo Mortensen for Green Book. Uh, for Lin Manuel, I do want to know is he going for the EGOT? Oh yeah. Does he have? Does he? Ha- he has the Tony, right? Yeah. There's yeah, for sure. There's in no world. There's no world where he doesn't. Have Lin Manuel Miranda will not have an EGOT. Did did he win a Grammy for Hamilton? Did Hamilton win a Grammy though for the soundtrack? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure he won a Grammy for <laughs> Moana, <coughs> which Shit. he helped yeah, he do the. I'm pretty sure he did got a Grammy, and he definitely got an Oscar. So, shit. There is absolutely no world in in five years if Lin Manuel Miranda doesn't have an EGOT, he should just quit. He should just <laughs> give it all up. Okay, okay. Uh, best performance in a supporting role by an actor, motion picture. Adam Driver for Black Klansman. That's cool. Uh, Marshall Ali, Green Book. I think that's an interesting. I think that's a, probably a really good choice. Uh, Richard E. Grant. Can you ever forgive me? Sam Rockwell for playing George W. in Vice, and Timothy Chalamet. The beautiful boy. The beautiful boy. For being in the beautiful. titular beautiful the boy. The titular beautiful boy. And what um, a beautiful boy he is. Uh, again, not not great reactions coming from beautiful boy. I don't know if I don't know if that's gonna. But his performance might be good enough to carry him. Yeah, could be. Best screenplay. Uh, Adam McKay for Vice. Alfonso Cuarón for Roma. Barry Jenkins of Beale Street could talk. Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara for The Favorite. And Nick Vallelonga, I'm going to butcher this, Nick Vallelonga, Brian Curie, and Peter Farrelly for Green Book. Um, I'd love to see The Favorite get it because it's, really, it's a really quippy movie. It's very funny. Yeah. It's a very funny movie. And uh, again, Adam I have McKay, not seen any of these. <laughs> I know. Doesn't that suck? But Adam McKay, like, man, he's really been, a, he's been appearing in all of these. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for it. Obviously, he directed it. He's got all of these he's returning. Kind of tour yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um. We're gonna speed some things along here because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting. Say, I'll be honest, Tom. I'm getting fucking like bogged down talking about this because it's just like I'm so much. I'm fighting between just the sheer amount of nominees and how much I like. Ultimately, just really don't give a shit about the Golden Globes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is that the Golden Globes is also does television. I know. So we're not even. Gonna I saw. Touch on- I saw Barry got a nominee though. Shout out to Barry. Great show. Shout uh, out to Killing Eve. Love you, Bill Hader, for directing and acting and. And all of that. Um, I do want to get over here for... Um, the animated? The animated, because I think we're, this is really fascinating. You've got Incredibles 2. That seemed like kind of a, a given. First movie I've seen by myself in a really long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember that movie. Mm. I think it's not that it was bad. It was just forgettable. Yeah, it is kind of forgettable. Uh, Isle of Dogs, a movie that I didn't really I care I love for. Dogs. I didn't really care for it. 
Really? I I love dogs. I love dogs. Oh Boom. god damn it. Wait, you never got that? No. What? Oh no. You... I love dogs. Isle of dogs. Ah. Oh my god, I feel like such a fucking idiot. Yeah, now you now you fucking turn er, your opinion around, don't you? Now yeah. that you know that Wes Anderson made a whole movie off of a shitty joke. Nah, it doesn't change my opinion. What? I, it it didn't hit me like Fantastic Mr. Fox did. Okay, well that's fine. But I thought it was I thought it was okay. Yeah, I think that the, w- the animation style actually like no, it's it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, but it actually kind of like maybe a little like sick every once in a while. Yeah, not in like a sensibility way or like I was I had a problem with it. It was just yeah, the it's it's a little bit jarring at times. But I think altogether beautiful. Like I I, I I'll give it up for I, I love shit. dogs. God damn it. You learn something I, new every day. I don't Tom. even believe this. I'm actually really pissed off. Uh, Mirai have not uh, heard anything about as it a, as an anime film. Actually, my my significant other has seen it. She mm. said it was okay. Oh, good. So it was all right. Just okay. Just all right. Yeah. With uh, this, some some it's shoulder, a, shoulder shrug. Yeah, she said it. So I believe this one's uh, Marmos Hosoda, I, and I you know I'm totally butchering those. Yeah, Mamoru Hosoda's new animated film Mirai. Uh, he's, he's Looks a guy, good. yeah, he's a guy that I've really enjoyed. He's, he's very, a lot of people have been trying to crown him. Oh, he's the next Miyazaki, blah, 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 blah. He kind of just does his own thing. He's made some really, really fantastic films. Yeah. That's a dangerous comparison. Oh, it totally is. It totally is. I think that that's going to, that hurts more than it helps. Yes. Cause it just gives you an unfair comparison. Um, Ralph breaks the internet. It's fine. Yeah. Have not seen it. A lot of memes. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't, it tries to kind of, I mean, that's the problem with satirizing internet culture, but you're doing it for kids. And you're doing it for Disney. Like, you go to the most intense place in the internet. Yeah. It's like a Disney related, it's basically Disney World on the internet. Yeah. It's, it was, it just seems right. like gross. But here's what I'm excited about Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Fuck yeah, dude. It looks, the animation style looks incredible. Yes. It looks it like does. an actual comic book come to life. And um, I'm really glad because it, is not part of the MCU. It's not connected to anything. It's kind of it seems to be almost like a riff on it because it's saying how ridiculous like these multiple universes are. Yeah. Cuz you've got like Spider-Ham voiced by John Mulaney <laughs> and uh Detective Spider-Man uh voiced by none other than Nicholas K. Really? Yeah, Spider-Man Noir, Detective Spider-Man. Oh my god. Voiced by Nick Cage. Um it looks really great, and it centers around uh, Miles Morales as Spider-Man, which is really exciting. Yeah, one of the most fascinating characters in that canon. Yeah, really love it. So I'm glad we have to take pretty good solace in the fact that um, only two of the movies are Disney movies. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> Not all of them. You know, it's it's exciting because... Uh, Disney and Pixar have such a stranglehold on animation, especially award season. Right. Be, that, but then again, some of their competition is just total shit. Like, look at DreamWorks, right? The Secret Life of Pets. Ugh. This is a fucking boring movie. Yeah. They're not good. Like, I'm sorry. The Incredibles 2 is probably better than that. You know, and but I I'm tired of it, so I'm glad that we're getting some foreign animation here. We're getting some indie animation here. We're get and while it is Spider Man, it's a Marvel property. It's at least di- different. It differentiates itself. Yeah. Okay. Wait a minute. How closely related to 
Disney is Spider-Man. I mean, this is under. So what this is, this is under the light, the license that Sony bought from Marvel. Oh, it's Sony. It's Sony. Okay, okay. Yeah, so it is a Marvel. It's not a Marvel Studios production, but it's in association with Marvel because right. it's 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 under the license that they bought from them to make Spider-Man back in 2001. Or ra- rather, it came out in 2002, I think. Right. Um, yeah, so that's Sony has owned the license for Spider-Man. Even with this MCU, with him appearing in Marvel movies, those are co-productions with Sony. Sony gets in on that money right. because they technically own the film rights to Spider-Man in all his forms, which is why they made Venom, which is why they're making this. They're just trying to capitalize on it because there was this whole thing that um the the amazing Spider-Man film that came out in like right. uh, who knows 2010 or something like that shitty yeah shitty but they had to they Sony basically had to make it because there was a clause that said if 4 years went by without a Spider-Man movie being made the rights are the rights would revert back to Marvel and they wow. would have gotten Spider-Man a lot earlier so that's so, why so, they did it they made it out of necessity that's crazy Essentially, yeah, and um, not a uh, not a great film franchise, but no, not hey, Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Uh, it looks fascinating, it, and I'm glad they're doing it different. They're making it its own thing, so I'm very excited for that. Uh, I do want to touch on the idea of the way we talk about you. So, assuming you've listened to this for the last twenty to thirty minutes of yeah. us running this down, the way we talk about the award season is really fascinating because we're not even talking about necessarily the quality of the films themselves. We're talking about their chances of winning. Right. Is there anything more capitalist than dude? Than this? I don't know. This might be peak capitalism because yeah. realistically, when we get into it, we, when you're making your ballots and when we do our Oscar bet, eventually when those noms come out, we are going to be choosing based on their ability to win, not their quality. Yeah, which what is, is this? The presidential election? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a scary thought, and this is why talking about how uh, award shows, like if people are like, "God, I fucking hate award shows," they're not trying to be contrarian. I really don't think so. That's not shouldn't be considered a contrarian position. Because award shows are, in a way, damaging to the conversation surrounding film at times. Or any any sort of thing, whether it's music, um, whether it's literature, whether it's, you know, television, what have you. Right. And whenever they happen, it dominates the conversation about whatever particular form of media that that is, you know. Yeah. People get upset when somebody wins a Grammy over somebody else. Or people get upset when somebody wins an Oscar over somebody else and it completely removes from the conversation like you said the t- topics of quality or topics of like or just actual en- meaningful installments in art yeah and enjoyment right and personal enjoyment you know and I've I've been uh, a practitioner of that in in the sense that you know I get I get up in arms about when certain things win and other things don't it's the closest an art form can get I feel like to pro- professional sports in a sense yeah and but the the colliery to that, I guess, or some, or something else to consider, though, is that, you know, when we had the whole debacle with La La Land, you know, and Moonlight, where Moonlight had actually won, but, um, 
you know, they accidentally write it at La La Land, you know, the question was asked, does it really matter who wins? And the easy answer is no. The the easier answer is no, because it doesn't diminish Moonlight as a film. But the symbolism, I think, is what people are really looking for. And maybe that's what we're actually talking about in, in a certain sense, is that Moonlight doesn't. If Moonlight doesn't win, or when, when rather, when Moonlight did win, it was a, it was symbolic that movies and narratives and stories, what have you, about these sorts of things can not only be financially or critically successful, but can achieve what is considered to be, uh, even among people that hate them, the highest award in cinema at least in American cinema, is the Oscar. The Best Picture Award is like the highest honor a film can receive, in a sense. And that's when giving the Oscar to somebody really, the importance of it really comes into play, right? When you're dealing with narratives like that, with Mm -hmm. narratives that actually matter, not things like fourth-time remakes about, you know, rich white singers, (laughs) you know, a a triumphing. Yeah, I mean... I mean, and and this, a star is born has some interesting stuff in there, but like, you know, if we if we go back, let's just go right back up to the top the, to the award that people are really going to be talking about a lot, which is best motion picture drama. Um, Black Panther wins that, or even Black Klansman wins that. That's huge. Yeah, that's an important thing. So. That suffice it to say, it's a very complicated, nuanced conversation to have. And as much as it is both award season, you know, it depends on how you want to look at it as award seasons as a function of, as you said, as of almost as a function of capitalism and as a function of a society that decides to make art compete versus have a conversation about it and like accept that certain not all things are not a thing doesn't have to be all things to all people and like you cannot like you can think a best picture winner is like crap and be like this is not it does not speak to me and, and i'd like to make a quick admission that i understand that without capitalism you know the vast amounts of wealth that's oh, required yeah, I mean, to make the movies that we're seeing today would be impossible that's yeah but that's a whole that's a whole nother thing. If you, know? you can't take a step back and critique the and critique systems it. that exist, then yeah. you're, you know. You know, we have to be cognizant or at least try to be cognizant. You know, I think that's something that we strive to do on the show. And we hope that everybody, uh, you know, if we're if you think we're wrong if or if we're missing something, please tell us. Because it really only we just want to add to the to the the general conversation. But as I said, Black Panther wins that award. That's a game changer for a lot of people. It says that a big budget movie starring um, an almost entirely black cast, save for a couple of people, a few people, that can work and that can be successful financially, critically, and during award season. So perhaps we'll we'll just leave it there where award seasons are complicated political things. Yeah. And um, as much as we hate them and hate the way we talk about them sometimes, it is important to talk about them. So um, on that 
morally ambiguous note. Morally ambiguous note. Uh, we will see you all next week for another episode of No Coast Cinema. Please keep talking. Please keep watching. Um, you know, don't. It's please keep to, thinking. Yeah, please keep thinking. It's very easy to get cynical about cinema, especially in the world of Disney ostensibly taking over everything. Right. Um, and a few companies basically running the show. There's still great cinema out there. You can still find it. It's being made. It's being made here in Chicago. It's being made in communities that have great stories to tell. So um, hopefully we can continue to, we can try to bring that to you as well as a little bit of pop culture as well. Yeah. It certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, this has been NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here on in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. We will see you all next week.